This is a crowd podcast. I'm Sam Warburton and you're listening to Captains. This is the podcast that gives you leadership insight from some of the biggest names in sport. This week, my guest is the man who delivered London 2012. He's a double Olympic gold medalist and current president of World Athletics, Sebastian Coe. I once got into fairly hot water for a question I was asked in the Times about the similarities between sport and politics. And I said, well, there is a similarity. You get injuries in both, but rarely in sport are they inflicted by your own teammate. Being a first mover is not always easy. I mean, you know what it's like. Stepping away from the herd is not always comfortable. I don't want a team that sits there saying, oh yeah, great president, what a wonderful idea, if they're two minutes later as they've left your office saying, what is this guy smoking? Weak leaders love weak people around them. Hi everyone, thanks again for listening to Captains. It's another good one today and we can welcome our first lord to the podcast, Seb Coe. Seb is without doubt one of the most important people in sport and has had a varied and diverse career and we discuss the transferable skills he has picked up along the way. On the track, as a middle distance runner, Seb won Olympic gold at the Moscow and the LA Games in the 80s, and we discuss his era-defining rivalry with Steve Ovett and how that helped shape who he is today. He had a spell in politics and is currently the president of World Athletics, but is perhaps most well-known for his organising and delivering of London 2012. Like most people my age, I've got nothing but great memories of those Olympics. That was a huge year for me, winning the Grand Slam with Wales, but my memories of the summer include Usain Bolt and Super Saturday and the opening ceremony. We talk in detail about some of the struggles he faced leading an ever-growing team and how he dealt with that pressure, criticism and negativity leading into the games. It is a fascinating conversation. Enjoy the episode with Seb Coe. Hiya Seb, welcome to Captains and thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? It's a great pleasure Sam and yeah, I'm doing okay. I'm in, uh, I'm in our Federation headquarters in sunny Monaco today. We haven't seen the sun down here for about three weeks but it's nice today. You trumped me within 10 seconds because I'm in Cardiff so <laughs> you've done me already. <laughs> no, you, you've got a nice seafront. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not too bad actually. It's yeah. developed nicely over the last 10 yeah, years. Yeah, it has, yeah. In terms of leadership in sport then, it, it, with yourself, and this was it's great to get you on, it doesn't get much bigger than organising the Olympic Games. And we'll jump around your timeline a bit because of not just the guests we've had, of almost any UK athlete that we've had, you've had such a diverse career. So you've just mentioned now you're in Monaco because you're currently the president of World Athletics. I'm correct in saying that, aren't I? I am. Well, I was when I woke up this morning, but you never know. If there's been a, <laughs> an in-house coup, that might all end at the end of the afternoon. So what, what do people talk to you about mainly? when they? Because when people say Sebco, I imagine a lot of people will think of various things, whether it's sports administration as a runner, London 2012, your role now. What do people talk to you about mainly when they meet you? It, it's a real mix. I mean, London is still big in people's memories. Mm. You know, and I, it, there's rarely a day goes by, if I'm certainly if I'm walking around London, where somebody doesn't stop me and say they were a games maker, a volunteer, or they had kids that ran with the torch or something like that. So it, it's a pretty good icebreaker. Yeah. Well, a, a few slightly longer in the tooth remember my athletics career. Then a few refer to a very indistinguished uh, political career for, <laughs> for a few years in uh, <laughs> at, the, uh, at the beginning of the 90s. But no, it's, it, it, it's, it's nice. It's a, it's a mixture of things. And then, of course, athletics. People are interested in in some of the big issues that we're confronting at the moment in athletics particularly you know given the complex global landscape with Russia and Belarus and 
<clears throat> you know, and the challenge going forward of some of the issues all sports are going to have to discuss, like transgender and things like that. So it's it's a pretty big landscape in sport at the moment. Nice. Well, let's dive into your career a little bit then, maybe the, the earlier years. And you were trained by your father. What was he like as a coach and, and what did you take from that relationship? Because that's quite an unusual circumstance for most athletes, I imagine, not being coached by their father. Yeah, I guess, I guess it is. It was funny because I, you know, a lot of people assume that it was a sort of pushy parent, you know, nudging me towards a, a, a sport when in fact I actually joined an athletics club without their, without them even knowing. I was brought up in Sheffield, the People's Republic of South Yorkshire. And <laughs> around about the time I started to get interested in sport, we had two Olympians in the city, John and Sheila Sherwood. They both got medals in the Mexico Olympic Games. And I thought this, look, they then came around the schools with the medals and, you know, and it just it sort of opened my eyes to what the Olympic Games was about. And I'd always liked running. I'd sort of done it at school sports, the usual, you know, the usual way we all start. And I joined what I thought was their athletic club. It still remains humorous to them to this day that I joined the wrong club. <laughs> I actually joined the rival club. And that's how it started. And then my, my father was sort of, I think, nudged by my mum, who said, I don't know where he keeps going to, you know, Sunday mornings and Tuesday nights, Thursday nights, you know, your traditional club days. And she sort of packed him off to find out what I was doing. And, of course, he was an engineer. He was a racing cyclist and a pretty good racing, pretty good standard, nudging national standard. He was also an engineer. And if anybody that knows engineers know they love taking things apart and putting them back together again. And he sort of watched what was going on at the margins of this athletics club and just sort of classically thought, well, I think I can do at least as well and started coaching me. And that, that's how it actually started. So it wasn't, it wasn't being nudged towards it by anybody. In fact, I don't think, I think that was probably a huge surprise to him that he, he then ended up for the next 20 something years of his life coaching me. Did you find that easier or harder taking criticism from your father? No, I, I never found it. I, I never found it a problem. Actually, I, look, you've played at the very highest level. I think the one thing that I I recognise amongst top competitors is that they crave criticism. Yeah. <laughs> they don't they don't shy away from it, and you, it's just as well because you know you get it all the time. But actually, if you think about it rationally, and, and I'm not talking about mindless criticism and, and abuse, but you know, actually, what are we all trying to do every time we go out to train or compete? We want to be better than we were the day before or the year before. And so for me, it, it didn't really matter whether it was my father or not. If I felt that the criticism was structured and meaningful, then it was helpful. So no, I, it, it, I didn't sort of think of it as being, well, it's my dad saying that anymore. And he always used to refer to me as his, I wasn't the only athlete he coached, by the way. So he sort of referred to me never as his son. It was always my athlete, which always was a bit a bit amusing to, to to journalists. So what were you like as a youngster then? Because you've got to have to run like you ran. You've got to have a, a, an amazing genetic ability anyway. You know, I, I couldn't just train and get anywhere near anywhere near the levels of just some of your competitors. But what were you like as a youngster? Were you driven unusually for? A young boy, and when did you realise that you were probably maybe a bit different in that sense to other other guys your age? I, that's a, it's a great question, and I'd, I'm not really sure I know the answer to that. I've always loved running. I mean, my parents, you know, sadly they're not around now, but my mum, had she been here, would have told you that I was 
I, I couldn't ever, you know, I was, I was run, I ran everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it was, I found it easier than cycling. I never had a bike. So I used to live, you know, we, before I moved up to Yorkshire, we lived in the Midlands and I would think nothing of running two or three miles into town. It was just, I just enjoyed doing it. I know that sounds quite perverse, but that's what I did. How old are you at this point? Uh, well, uh, I was probably five or six. Even. Really? Yeah, wow. I know. No, I think no, it was I, like I, 12, yeah. Wow. No, 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 no. I, I used to run everywhere and, you know, and you know, it was just what I did. It is, and I'd, even today, I, I mean, I've, I've run this morning for an hour. Amazing. It's a charitable, Sam, it's a charitable description of what I've been doing this morning. <laughs> how, how far one, would you run now out of interest? Because I'm terrible oh, at running. Do, do you know something? I don't even, I don't measure distance. I just put, you know, I, yeah. I, I run for an hour because I feel that if I don't do an hour, I don't sort of feel I've I've done a great deal. Well, I'm impressed that. by that already. I can't run an hour now. I don't do, I don't run every <laughs> I don't run every day. I do uh, I, I do every other day. That sort yeah, of saves nice. what little little cartilage I've got left in my <laughs> knees. <laughs> so you've been quoted saying that you wanted to be in politics since you were 11 years old as well. So where did that drive and ambition come from? Do you think? Uh, again, it wasn't it wasn't particularly a, a drive. I mean, I was always fascinated by. By politics, I sort of ended up sort of sort of studying it and, and other bits and pieces at university. Uh, I, you may not know this, but a good chunk of my family are Indian. My grandfather was yeah, Indian. No, I knew my that. Mother. Yeah, your mo- it was your mother's uh, side, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And you know, that there was quite there was quite a lot of political interest. My I have a an elder cousin who was uh, ran India's intelligence services. I had a gra- an uncle that was a high commissioner in London for a time and, and involved in politics in India. So maybe it came, it probably came more from that side. And my parents, you know, there was a lot of political debate in the house. My dad was actually old Labour. It was a, you know, slightly unreconstructed socialist. My mum was a old-fashioned liberal and I and so political debate was always around the 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 the, the, the supper or the the breakfast table and I'm just about old enough young enough well old enough to remember them they did actually walk in the anti-Vietnam marches uh, in London so they were politically aware but they weren't really party political um, and then announcing to my dad, who was a socialist, and living in Sheffield at the time, I was going to stand as a Conservative MP. You'd have thought I'd announced the culling of the firstborn in everybody's family. I mean, it was sort of it was one of those one of those spectacular moments at the breakfast table. Yeah. I enjoyed politics. Uh, I was a member of Parliament for five years. When politics, I left. Pol- well. I say I left politics, let, politics left me in a big way because, of course, Tony Blair appeared on the scene, so we were out uh, of government. And then I was uh, William Hague's, uh, I helped William Hague with his campaign, uh, and then I became his chief of staff for four years until he stepped down. And then um, I thought I was going back to do other things. And, in fact, of course, literally a couple of years later, I'm you know helping London with the Olympic bid. How different was that then, being an athlete and then transferred into that world of politics? Because to me, it seems like it's you know poles apart. But I imagine there's probably some some crossover, or was there not? Or was it a very brand new experience? Well, I once got into 
fairly hot water for a question I was asked in the Times about the similarities between sport and politics. And I said, well, there is a similarity. You get injuries in both, but rarely in sport are they inflicted by your own teammates. <laughs> and <laughs> probably, wasn't, probably, probably wasn't the smartest way of... Uh, well, not normally inflicted by your own teammates. <laughs> I yeah. think you would tell me that there yeah. have been a few yeah. exam good examples of that. <laughs> but look, I think the one thing that I noticed... And I think anybody that comes from a performance-based background into politics, it's just the ad hoc nature of how things happen in politics. You know, if you've had a good game, you know, the, the scoreboard doesn't really lie. The stopwatch, for me, didn't lie. Uh, and there may be sort of gradations around it where you can sort of understand why a performance wasn't as good. But everything is, is was fairly clinical and objective. But when you get into politics, everything is subjective. I've always thought it's actually easier to become prime minister than it is to become the CEO in a FTSE 100. Because, you know, if you think that it takes 300 and something members of parliament normally to form a government, 70 are straight away too young and inexperienced, the rest are a bit past it. And you've got about 100 and something in the middle through which you choose government. And then out of, you know, about 20 people, you choose one prime minister. It's statistically not that hard, is it, when you think about how tough it is to become, I don't know, the England rugby coach or being the CEO in a, in a big organisation. I think it's actually a tougher journey. What was harder for you then, winning or plan, meticulously planning, I imagine, your journey to winning gold medals at Olympic Games or chairing the London 2012 Olympic Committee? What, was, what would have been more difficult for you? The first thing I need to say, and I really do genuinely mean that, is that it, it, I'm very lucky to be able to talk about either, really. You know, my, my career, you know, with its twists and turns was, you know, was was okay and I, I enjoyed what I did and, you know, obviously you know what it's like. You know, the biggest honour really is competing in your national vest. Well, if you can do it at a World Cup or a or an Olympic Games, that's ultimately the honour. And if you can win something when you're there, that's, you know, that's a, that's the dream, isn't it? I love doing that. And that had, it, you know, that had its moments, but it's a very... Look, I had a backroom team of coaches and, you know, the usual panoply that go with that. But basically, I worked with five people and some training partners and, and great friends at athletics clubs. But, it, you know, track athletics, it's not a team event and it can be quite solitary. There are... You know, you run 100 miles a week. There aren't that many people in your neighbourhood that want to join you on that, that sort of journey. <laughs> and, of course, the ability to build a bid team and then be part of a team that go, you know, that, that doubles its numbers every year. So, you know, you come out of an Olympic bid and there are about 60 of you and that bid team suddenly becomes your organising committee. And then over the space of seven years, you double your numbers each year. So... You don't need to be Einstein to figure out that from, you know, if you end up with nine, 10,000 people in an organising committee, the big <laughs> jump up is in the last year. You go from sort of five to 10,000 people. Wow. So in a way, you had to, you, you sort of, I went from, yes, a very small team of people that worked really well with me and, you know, we all enjoyed what we did to suddenly being in a political environment where there was every, there was no objectivity about anything you know everything you know, it was it was everything was pretty subject it was pretty subjective and then back into you know a, a team environment where it's not just you you're thinking about you know you're thinking about 
what the you know the culture of the team and the shape of the team and finding the right talent and and then defending them because politicians are you know are a difficult animal when they sort of get into that environment so it was a, it was an interesting but in a way i guess learning to work with a small team gave me an insight into some of the do's and don'ts about how you interact with people in a larger team and that funny little team of five people headed by my dad and you know some physios and nutritionists and things like that in a, in a way it was micro but it was there, there were some really good lessons i absorbed during that period what what would be some of those do's and don'ts that you were alluding to well first of all everybody's got to know what the mission is and i know that's a very obvious thing to say but you know if you've got the right people in the team and my dad was a good example of that. And what he was really good at was not sort of being tribal about it and saying, I'm the coach and I know everything, but saying, I don't actually know everything. So, you know, I'm not a nutritional expert. So we do need somebody that does that. And so what I observed in all those people working together, they were all super smart and brainy. They, they worked really well together. They, they weren't intimidated by other people. They were happy to share what they were doing. My old man, my dad pulled it together in the middle. He never let them anywhere near the training schedules, but my God, he plundered all the skill and expertise that he could take from that. And he trusted them. And so for me, I guess it's building teams is, is finding the right people making sure they're absolutely world-class. You know from sport, you know, you've, if, you've, if you haven't got world-class coaches, it's very unlikely you're going to be playing in a world-class team. So you do need to find that you have to be absolutely unreconstructed on finding the best people you can. But when you've got them, let them get on with it. You know, trust them, don't, <laughs> don't micromanage them. Don't start sitting on their shoulders telling them, that, you know, well, that's not how I would do it. You know, it's London Olympic Games is a good example. We had Danny Boyle, the genius film director of train spotting, and I think he won a couple of Oscars by the time he did the opening ceremony. It would have been like me sitting there telling him what to put in the opening ceremony <laughs> and how to film it. It, it would have been ridiculous. Yeah, so absolutely. I think I learned that if you've got the right people uh, and you trust them, then don't micromanage them. Let them get on with it. Just create the, the environment around. Make sure that there's a culture that is creative and people aren't afraid of making decisions and worse than that feel that if they get it wrong they're going to be booted out it doesn't work like that but it's you know if I go back to my early athletics years with that crazy group of four or five people who spent far too much time probably far, a lot of most of their waking hours and probably m most times they should be sleeping trying to figure out how to make me the fastest two-lap runner in the world and I just always take my hat off to the focus and the sheer fun that they had doing it. Well, we're kind of navigating towards this way, and I'd love to pick your brains on this. And it's a, a question I've asked all of our guests, and it's the, the captain's compass. So you've got your compass and you've got the four most important traits for, for you personally that you'd like to demonstrate to be a leader. You've been in some massive sort of leadership roles. What would be the four traits that you'd want to put on your captain's compass? I think the first one is bravery. Because, look, leadership is a shared process. I'm not even sure I really understand the definition of leadership 
even now. You know, the great organisations, London 2012, actually here at World Athletics. It's a set of shared values, isn't it? And so for me, it, it is that. But ultimately, if you do have a leadership role, then it's a, sometimes it's a lonely place. Mm. And you've got, you know, you have to make difficult decisions. We've made tough decisions and sometimes they've not been particularly popular. You know, we were the first and only sports governing body to ban Russia for doping back in 2015. Yeah, I remember that. You know, I, didn't, I wasn't getting too many Christmas <laughs> cards from the IOC on that particular one. But they weren't always popular decisions to take, and sometimes that's a bit of a lonely old place. And I, I think one of those destinations on the compass, and, I, and again, I learned that probably from my dad, that is don't ever ask people to do something you're not yeah. prepared to do yourself. And sometimes you just do occasionally have to take one for the team. On those difficult decisions, did you like making those decisions or did you find it quite uncomfortable? Or did you get used to it? Rarely do you make these decisions unilaterally. You have to sit and have people around you that are prepared to give you their advice. And you want people around you. Look, weak leaders love weak people around them. Yeah, they don't that's a good one, I am absolutely the other, other way around. I don't want a team that sits there saying, oh, yeah, great president, what a wonderful idea. If they're sitting there, you know, two minutes later as they've left your office saying, what is this guy smoking? <laughs> so it's, it's really important that you have people that are prepared to sit down in front of you and say, I think you've got this wrong. Yeah. Or, look, I think there may be a better way of doing it. I don't mind that at all. It's, I guess it goes back to the craving criticism. You don't mind. And, and apart from anything else, when you get people doing that, you've, you're actually feel, you do feel comfortable that they're bought into the project, they've, they've engaged with it. So um, I, don't, I don't mind that at all. And, but ultimately, it's not a bad way of approaching it, which is really do what you think is right. You know, you don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I've trimmed here or I've done it because I've bowed to public pressure or I've done it. You've, you've just got to soldier on sometimes and, and, and understand, I think good leaders understand that they're probably making decisions now that maybe only their successors are going to see the impact of, but actually that there, there are decisions you have to make that are going to be for the long haul and recognise that actually you're probably going to take the criticism. Being a first, a first mover is not always easy. I mean, you know what it's like. Stepping away from the herd is, is not always comfortable. You're listening to Captains with me and my guest, Seb Coe. So London 2012, what was it like then? Because I, I heard or I read when you were saying uh, you were in the East End of London and you were appointed, I think it was 2005, so seven years before the Games happened. See those t orange tower blocks, that's where the velodrome's going to go. How hard was it to convince people to get on board? We had the evaluation panel and that's a group of experts from the IOC that come through your city with all their you know, resident experts, professors of transport and sustainability. And the only way you could see this parcel of land, this, I mean, area of desolation, was we had to build a sort of viewing platform on the side of an old people's home. I remember standing up there, you know, I got the president of the IOC, I got all these, you know, the, the, the dignitaries there and everybody that matters in that decision. 
And I remember standing there going, well, it's exactly that. You see that rotting pile of fridges over there. Well, that's where, that's where the stadium's going. And those horrible orange tower blocks, they're disappearing. We're going to have a velodrome. And oh, by the way, and three and a half thousand affordable homes and all that stuff that you wouldn't walk your dog across is, is going to become wetlands and waterways. And they looked at me like I was some vaguely fraudulent timeshare salesman. <laughs> And I remember thinking, you know, it was really, I mean, you know, we were, we were selling a, it was a very, very solid vision and I knew it was going to take place, but yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not sure at that moment, these guys were completely sold on my uh, selling ability on the side of the, uh, on the side of this viewing platform. What was the pressure like to deliver that games? The bid was a tough one because, you know, we didn't start off particularly well. And and I think the reason when I became chair of the bid, I, I, I sort of recognised so many of these experiences go back to what I talked about, you know, that many years ago with my coaches and the small team because, you know, the one thing they always instilled in me was don't just keep asking how we're going to do this, but keep asking yourself why you're doing this. Why do you want to do this? And I did notice that when I did take the chair of the bid committee that, Everybody was very smart and very focused on the project management, but they'd actually stopped. They hadn't asked themselves the fundamental question, why are we doing this? And actually, we went into a deep dive for a couple of weeks where we all sat, me included, and sort of rationalised why we were doing what we were doing and what were the benefits and what were the legacies and what is it we wanted to achieve, whether it was building a new city inside an old city in seven years or getting more kids in local communities to be engaged in, in sport, but not just sport. You know, we wanted the opening ceremony to create more musicians, website designers, all sorts of, you know, in the, in the creative industries as well. It was very interesting, Sam. Once we had articulated internally why we were doing what we were doing, we were then able to externally communicate quite crisply why we were doing what we were doing. And then, interestingly, at the same time, the public support, because we were able to articulate to ourselves why we were doing it, our, the public support began to, to match that. And when we started, I mean, we had an approval rating of about 10%. And if you ask that 10%, do you, do you think you can win? That dropped to about 5%. And so when we went into the games, the IOCs poll every city and I think we had about 80-something percent approval for what we were doing, but we started from a very rocky place, but I'm not sure we'd have got there had we not spent time, in a way, just focusing on ourselves and asking ourselves why we were doing what we were doing. And once we'd sort of figured that out, then it was much easier to create the, the vision and then deliver against that vision and, and, and simply answer the question why rather than just how are you going to do it. Was there any comparables with the pressure of delivering the 2012 Games with has been an athlete, say in 1980, 1984, when all the eyes are on you as a great middle distance runner, winning the gold medals? Then it, to me, it would seem like that would probably set you up quite well, actually, to sort of be the man in the microscope or under the microscope for 2012. You've got those experiences you can draw back on and you're used to that hype, if that makes sense. I think it helped. I don't think it was the only thing, but I think it helped. Look, you've competed at the highest level. You know, you learn a lot about yourself 40 minutes before a 
an Olympic Championships or a you know a World <laughs> Cup game. You do. Yeah, I mean, it, and, and it doesn't really matter whether it's an individual sport or a team sport. You know, you do have to then ask yourself a few questions and. You know, I, I, I can't think, there's there's nothing I've done in my life and probably never will that has matched, you know, sitting in a call room 40 minutes before an Olympic final. You you just do learn, you know what it's like, you learn a lot about yourself. And it was interesting, there were some things that people found odd on the day that we, we ran the bid. Uh, we had the bid presentation in Singapore because we were the third bid, and we were the first one after lunch. And all our teams said, so, uh, you know, we better get down to the hall to listen to them. And I went, why would you want to do that? And they said, well, you know, because, you know, uh, and I went, no, 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 I'm not going to. I never, day before an Olympic final, went and watched everybody else warm up. Uh, you know, they said, well, they, they're going to be good. I said, I bloody hope they're good. They've been doing this for three years. I mean, they're not going to be bad, are they? <laughs> so, and I said, well, what are we going to learn? What, what, so, so... If they're good, what are we, you know, we're not going to suddenly change the message or yeah. suddenly go back into training for this. You know, the, the haze in the barn, guys, it's as good as it's going to get here. And they said, well, you know, are you not coming? I said, no. And I actually lay on my bed listening. I'm a jazz freak, so I lay on my bed listening to jazz most of the morning and then went in there. And I think there are, look, I'm, I'm not saying that's the only approach, but I do think that they're, they're learning to manage your own environment, you know, in the immediate hours or so before a competition. I actually think competitions are won and lost by bad decisions or, you know, just having a crap day at the office. But I on honestly think so much of it, it's the immediacy before a competition and how you, how you deal with that, those few days in the lead up to it. That's a great story. That's that athlete mentality sort of shining through there and controlling what you can control, really. I think people worry too much about what other people are doing. Just control what you can control. So, so as like a fan, I was obviously a huge fan of the London 2012s and I only remember good things about it. You're in the thick of it. I'm sure that you might remember as all a sportsman or whether you're in that role there in 2012, you remember a lot of the, the negative things about it. But to most people, it's just like a massive positive experience. Were there many negative voices around when you were going through the bid to 2012 and how did you deal with those yeah to start with most of the newspapers were a lot large parts of the media really did not support this and and look to be honest sam you can understand it you know this was 2003 big projects weren't reputationally in the elysian fields were they we'd had the dome which was sort of not the greatest uh, yeah, I remember that, actually. Uh, story yeah. of project management. We'd had Wembley Stadium that was delayed like four or five years and nobody could decide whether it was football, rugby, rugby league, even track and field was supposed to be there. We had the World Athletics Championships in 2005 in London. We had to actually hand them back because we didn't have the, the track available at Wembley. Was sub subsequently, we never ended up with a track there. So... Yeah, there were, you can understand why people were a bit suspicious when people like me stood up and said, <laughs> yeah, don't worry, we, you know, we're going to deliver an Olympic Games, we're going to build that. It wasn't, there were lots of things at the time that made it more complicated in, in trying to give people confidence that we knew what we were doing in, in delivering a Games. And I think if I'd been at the other end of that, I'd have probably asked the same questions. But all we really tried to explain was that there was nothing mysterious or sinister about this. We wanted to deliver something, which is in, in my own head, 
I thought would give us the best chance of doing what I passionately believe in, which is giving people sport and watching sport change the lives of young people. And that there was an interesting moment in, in the, the day before the vote in Singapore, the, the sort of the hub of our, you know, little campaign team happened to be, you know, in, in one of the rooms I was sort of living in. And I, and I got Daley Thompson, I got Jonathan Edwards, I got Tani Gray Thompson, I got Adi Adapatan, I got Colin Jackson, a whole group of athletes that had come out with us, that sort of mates of mine that were out supporting, but in a really positive, structured way. To cut a long story short, we all agreed that if we got the right result the following day, we would happily hand back anything that we'd achieved individually in our sports. And there were a lot of medals in that. Tanny Gray Thompson had most of them, to be honest. Yeah. I have to be honest, it took <laughs> Daley Thompson a little bit longer than most of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's it so took surprised. Daley a little bit longer to <laughs> grasp that, uh, that concept, but even he agreed. And, and look, I think our view was, we like to think in, in a modest way we... You know, we put a few more people into into athletics or or sport generally, but I think all of us realise that if you we had a games in your own backyard and you had all the legacies and all the things that you really could drive off the back of that, then that had to be more impactful than anything we'd done individually. What was the proudest moment of the games for you? That's a really really good question. I mean, I could talk about you know Super Saturday. Mo Farah, yeah. Jess, Greg Rutherford. Crazy. I could talk about the extraordinary number of medals, but I, I don't even think it's that. I, I just think it's the sheer joy of walking, you know, into stadiums with families and people that just, you know, were just so at home in that environment. And I, I just, it was a great privilege to be able to be part of a team that delivered that. And... You know, just to see the work of the volunteers and just everybody came together in a in a moment that I probably I don't know I don't want to be overly dramatic about it, but I, I probably won't witness too many occasions like that again in my lifetime. Oh, it was amazing. That's I, I look back at nothing but fond memories. I thought it was it was phenomenal. So you, you're you're running career now. I wouldn't mind dip into that. You know, you sort of I can get a sense of your you know your athlete mindset into your life after running. But when you were running, your and Steve Overt's uh, rivalry remains one of the most iconic of, of all rivalries. Looking back at that now, how important was that in terms of you growing and learning about yourself? Well, I'm immediately laughing, certainly smiling, because <laughs> 1979, eve of the Moscow Games, Christmas Day, and I went out running. I was living in Sheffield then, and everything from your front door in Sheffield is uphill. And there was a run that I used to do from one of the valleys outside the city. It was about 13 miles uphill and the weather was really horrible. It was, you know, sleet and snow and really strong wind. And I remember finishing the run, getting into my house, changing, having Christmas with my brothers and sisters and my mum and dad and whoever, whatever other waifs and strays seemed to turn up on Christmas. And about midway through the afternoon, I'm sort of feeling vaguely uneasy. And I suddenly realised why I was feeling uneasy. And I thought, I bet he's out doing another training session. And completely obsessively, I went back up to my bedroom, put my kit, put my kit back on, 
And bearing in mind I'd done 13 <laughs> uphill that morning. Oh, I love it. I put my kit back on and did another five. And then I came back and felt, you know, I thought, great, you know, I've sort of oh, I love it. done what I had to do and, and enjoyed, I don't know, the 600th edition of the Dam Busters or whatever we were all watching. <laughs> and I'm, I'm rolling the clock on a long way, but to the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in 26, I think it was, and Freddie... Steve Ovet's son is an athlete, uh, and Steve was working for one of the Australian broadcasters, and he said to me, he said, do you mind sitting with Freddie while I'm broadcasting and we can have supper afterwards? I said, no, it's a nice, nice idea. So Freddie was sitting there, and he was asking me what it was like to run against his dad and all that sort of stuff. And when Steve finished the commentary, we went off and had a bite to eat. And I said, Steve, I'm going to tell you a story now that I've never told anybody. And I repeated the story about, you know, doing my 13 miles and then slightly obsessively putting the kit back on again. And bearing in mind, this is like 20 something years later, he looked at me and he said, did you only go out twice that day? <laughs> <laughs> so he was winding you up yeah, almost each time. Yeah, of course he was. But he, in fact, he probably did go out three times that day. So. Look, oh. you know, when we got asked the question, you know, we did the sort of slightly Pavlovian response. Well, no, no, we're only worrying about ourselves and all that. But of course we yeah, thought about yeah. each other. We had to. Yeah. You know, we were both training to stop each other doing something that we'd both been doing for the best part of 10 years beforehand. So it was inevitable that, and I, and I do, it, it, look, I'm very, from a from a, a mellowed distance, I'm absolutely prepared to say he was the most talented, naturally talented athlete I've ever raced against. And yeah, he, of course he drove us. And I'm, I'm sure in my own way, I probably drove him. How, how important do you think was that rivalry and to getting the best out of yourself? I think it was important. I don't think it was the, any, it was the only thing, yeah. but you know, it was inevitable. You, you know, you had to recognize that the two of us were probably destined he was precociously talented at the age of 15 or 16 when I was trudging around, you know, cross-country courses, at, you know, in, in South Yorkshire. Steve was competing for the national team in, in a European championship and nicking silver medals. So he was an extraordinary athlete and came from a very different end of the sport from me. I was sort of northern-based, so everything was cross-country road and track was something you did when cross-country season finished before the road season started. Steve came from a shorter distance back. He was a very tasty 200-metre runner. He was, he was fast. We didn't really know each other until the moments where we, we clashed in a big way towards the end of the 70s and into the 80s. But, you know, I, I, you couldn't have opened a copy of Athletics Weekly, the Bible of our sport, for five or six years while I was sort of learning the trade, not to be able to, you know, I, I grew up with his photograph on the front page of, you know, of the magazine every few weeks. So, yeah, of course, I was a, I was conscious that in order to do what I wanted to do, I was going to have to at least equal one of the most talented athletes of all time. You've been through so much now in your career as a competitor, administrator, governing bodies, led in 2012. What do you know now that you wish you knew maybe 30, 40 years ago? That's a really good question too. Um, the thing, I guess, it, it, I guess it comes with age. You, you'll, you'll nowhere near that, but you just become less judgmental. You know, life is, it, it's not an exact science. I think there are two things for me. I think it's been really helpful. It's not the only thing, but I think it's been really helpful to see 
the world of sports administration, what I'm doing now through the eyes of an athlete. You know, I remember getting into a silly argument a few years ago, um, partly with the International Olympic Committee about, you know, whether it was right for an athlete to, to take the knee on the podium. And I, I just didn't know what the debate was about. Of course, it's right. We can't have it both ways. We don't, we can't be sitting there saying, you know, we want athletes to be involved and, you know, supporting the sport. And then, oh, we, we're not quite sure about your views on climate change or racial integration. So, you know, it, for me, it was, it, it was really important that I always, even to this day, I hope, always see the issue through the prism of a competitor. And, and I think that's, that's good. And I just, I think in my early years, I was probably less aware that stuff happens, things change and you move on. <laughs> and you, you just have to, you can't dwell for too long. And, and the world we live in now is just the rapidity of change and the speed of change means you can't be wedded to concepts that in a few years' time are going to look entirely different. So I think if I'd gone back a few years, I would have been more open to external debate and recognising that actually people's views and, and judgments are really going to add value when they come, particularly from, you know, from, from spheres that, and worlds that you're not familiar with. Great answer. This last one might feel a little unfair um, because you've done so many great things. It's probably going to be hard to, to put it down to one, but it's just from your personal perspective and what was probably for you personally most important. But on you know, legacy, that word is, is used a lot. What would you like to be remembered as? And if you could pick one image, would it be you crossing the line to win the Olympic gold or delivering that speech in, in London 2012? Which one was was more important to you? Look, they were both big moments for me, but if you pin me down on it, I can answer this very, very easily and simply. It was being a part of the London 2012 team. That for me was the height, you know, was really a massive, massive moment for me. Uh, and I worked with a group of people who uh, were so smart and so so willing to to go the extra mile. And I'm not talking about just our leadership teams, right the way through to the 70,000 of the best volunteers the Olympic movement's ever witnessed. So being a, being a part of that, I think, was, was for me, was, was very special and will always be my proudest moment. Love that. Well, just want to say thanks once again for jumping on the podcast. Honestly, you've been such an inspiring character from your competing days to what you did at London 2012 to your roles now. And that has been a real privilege and so insightful having you on the podcast. So thank you so much, Seb, for coming on and all the best for, for what the future holds. Sam, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Cheers, Seb. Thanks. Take it easy. Thanks so much to Seb for his time. He's a really passionate and engaging talker and it was great hearing and reflect on his leadership journey. I absolutely loved his quote, weak leaders love weak people. I've never heard that before and that could be one of the quotes of the series. And I liked it because I've seen it and I've experienced it. As a leader, you gotta get good people around you who can challenge you in a healthy way. I also like the importance of building teams and trusting people. It's easy for leaders to micromanage when actually just take a step back and let your team get on with it. We're almost done for this week. Please keep your messages coming in either via captains at crowdnetwork.co.uk or by using the hashtag CaptainsPod on social media. Make sure you're following us on LinkedIn too. Just search for Captains with Sam Warburton. There's a nice community growing there, so do get involved. 
And don't forget, if you subscribe to Crowd Sports Plus on Apple, you can get these episodes of Captains ad-free, as well as bonus content every week. You can also listen ad-free on Amazon Music. I'll be back next week. I'll see you there. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.